Hey everyone, you're listening to Angel Nears the podcast. Angel Nears is a Silicon Valley based community for startup builders where experienced operators share their firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Ole Kujikov, and our guest today is Steve Viarengo, an accomplished software executive with over 20 years of experience. Throughout his career, Steve has held positions at Commerce One, Oracle, and Capsulon. He's co-founded a SaaS startup that got acquired three years later and served as an operating partner at Andra Founders Fund. Today, we're discussing the implications that startups should consider when targeting enterprise customers. This includes potential changes to the roadmap, security and compliance audits, other demands like source code escrow, managing relationships and expectations. But before we get into that good stuff, Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me on. Yeah, so let's start this thing proper. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your experiences in the tech industry to this point? Sure, I'd be glad to. You kind of gave a, a little bit of my background, but you know, I started many years ago, more than I would care to, to number here, working in, in software companies, both large and small companies like Oracle and Accenture, uh, as well as companies sort of more in that mid-stage, you know, 10-ish million type of revenue, down to even starting my own company about 15 years ago uh, in the event management space. So a, a wide variety of company sizes, been involved in kind of human capital management, supply chain management, global trade software, fintech, but sort of consistent throughout my entire career, it's been primarily focused on the product side and, and heading product or product management, some kind of operational and general manager roles uh, interspersed in there. But really, my, my forte has been building product and, and, and the product management function. Awesome. Well, this isn't exactly in the show notes, but I actually work in product myself. And one of our biggest challenges is kind of dealing with enterprise customers. So I'm using this as an opportunity to learn for myself. It's not just great content for the listeners. Um, but let's get started. So startup leadership dreams of bagging the elephant. But how does landing an enterprise customer affect the way that companies need to think about releasing their software? Well, let's first start off with uh, what a release is. You know, releases are how software features and changes are put out to customers. And software startups often have very frequently releases, sometimes daily even, because their products are less mature and they have fewer complex dependencies. You know, and this agility is a, is a big factor in startups being able to innovate fast. However, enterprise customers often place a premium on quality and stability versus fast deployment and new features. And, and this maybe has nothing at all to do with you know, your, your company's ability to produce quality code, but really more to do with a large enterprise's ability to digest changes. You know, doing the required testing that their IT policies mandate, handling the change management and, and potential disruption that can come from uptaking a new release. These are all very critical components to uptaking new software that enterprises place a, a real premium on. And enterprises that are relying on your software to support mission critical functions, you know, they might want to take up new releases monthly or even quarterly in some cases. And, and it becomes kind of an innovator's dilemma 
for a startup. You know, being agile and innovative is is one of the the, the powers that startups have over over larger companies, larger software companies. But you have to be able to, when you're serving an enterprise, kind of still keep that agility and innovation while giving the predictability and stability that the enterprise customers demand. You know, one of the things that I remember from within my career is working for a, a large, working with a large financial customer, and they were building a new product with us. And, you know, we had regular fast iterations with them, deploying things into their test environment very regularly and got into this very dynamic rhythm. Then when we deployed to production and they brought their first end user on, they mandated monthly changes only. And that was just a shock to our system because we were so used to that very dynamic, well, let's iterate, fail fast kind of thing as we worked with them. But you know, that that's really not how an enterprise thinks. Yeah. So one of the things you had to get really I guess my question, my follow-up there is like, is it more important for the startup to sort of fit the enterprise's needs? It's more important for the uh, startup to fit into the needs of the customer than than the other way around, right? Yeah, and, and that's a that's a big one, you know. And and for for startups, even even I think industry veterans that start their own company can kind of forget that. You know, you have to get really good at things like release notes and documentation, giving the customer plenty of time to test new features before it goes live. You know, those are skills that are, you know, sometimes startups really don't think about. And again, so focused on the adrenaline and innovation and failing fast and iterating, but wait a second, you know, Got to document what's coming. Got to make sure we have a long enough lead time for our, our enterprise customer to test. These are these are different muscles that a startup sometimes doesn't exercise, and, and there's ways around it. You know, you could or ways to manage it. You can you know build your software with things like feature flags, so that new features can be released to enterprises, turned off, and only turned on when they're ready. You can get really good at documenting changes. You can think about testing environments and testing strategies so your your customer gets really comfortable with the changes ahead of time. But, you know, for sure, it's a muscle that uh, startups need to build when dealing with these big guys. Yeah, so it sounds almost like a like a cultural shift that needs to happen kind of away from the the agility that makes, that's one of the key powers that a startup has towards a more kind of planning, doing approach with more documentation. Is, is that what your experience has been? Maybe tell me a little bit more about what, what you've seen out there. Yeah, I, and I, I've seen you, you really treat, try to find that sort of middle ground, you know, and, and work at a pace that is, that is dynamic and fast enough and agile enough to allow you to get those important features to market and to take advantage of being a startup where you can iterate rapidly while still trying to make sure you're focusing on those other aspects uh, that an enterprise customer values. So like I mentioned, some of the things that have helped us work uh, with enterprises in the past is, you know, everything from feature flags, which allow you to release something with, with features turned off. So you still are able to get new functions out there and maybe have other customers test them, but the enterprise doesn't need to turn them on to just 
coming up with a plan that allows you know, multiple environments, a testing environment, a sandbox environment for your enterprise customer or for your other customers to play in before things get released out to, to the production environment. And how about the impact on the product roadmap or the longer term plan that startups create for their software? Yeah, so from a, a product perspective, you know, a product roadmap is the most important artifact that the product team will produce. You know, it's 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 a plan that looks beyond an individual release and kind of describes the journey you want to take your product on over the next 12 months. You know, it got its name because it's a road, much like you lay out a roadmap that that uh, helps you plan a trip. This is a roadmap that that plans your your your, your product journey over the next 12 to 24 months. And every product role that I've ever had in a software company, large or small, the main question asked from every constituent, whether it's sales or investors or customers or my engineering teams, is what's the roadmap? What's the roadmap? And, and how you set a roadmap and prioritize a roadmap. And there's, there's many different ways of, of doing that. And that could be really a, a podcast on its own. For the purpose of this discussion, you know, we'll really focus on what onboarding your first enterprise customer can do to the roadmap and product priorities that you've already set out. And the big, the big challenge is keeping your enterprise customer or, you know, from really taking over that roadmap, hijacking that roadmap with their own priorities. And, and, and you have to, as a, as a, as a startup, really be able to make sure you know your plans don't get hijacked by a, a single large customer and this could be very tricky as when you're just starting out these enterprise relationships are some of your most important assets for fundraising and, and growing revenue and legitimizing your company but that's a, an important skill as well is, is managing your enterprise customer as it relates to your roadmap yeah, we'll, we'll speak to that. So it sounds like you need to find a real balance between how much collaboration is enough and then too much when it comes to kind of giving these enterprise clients a seat at the table for product road mapping. So how have you been most successful when it comes to that collaborating with customers or partners on a, on a product roadmap? Yeah, so some of the, the tips... I've used, you know, and tricks I've used in the past to kind of include really avoiding any kind of roadmap commits in your contract uh, with your customers. You know, this should be, this is easier said than done sometimes. You know, some customers, especially the larger ones, will, will be pretty adamant about, you know, functional items that they want to see in, in the contract. And, as, as a way of holding your company to them, but but those should be really avoided you know, at all at all costs. Planning your roadmap so that you have some flexibility in there to carve out capacity for for what you might be asked to do. So you know, kind of one of the ways that that I've thought about roadmap planning when it comes to this is, you know, there's just allocations sort of off the top that you think about making, maybe 50% of your roadmap capacity is is on new features and you know 25% might be on advancing your tech stack and, and non-functional requirements and then 25% you know might be held out as a buffer 
so those are those that's another kind of strategy is 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 the way you allocate your capacity as it relates to your roadmap and also just you know be willing to work with your customer be ready to kind of dig in and and it's it's kind of nasty and unpleasant sometimes but they might come with you with a very long list of things they're asking for and if you dig in and and you know work with them to prioritize Oftentimes you find they have a very clear idea of what's most important. And if you tackle the, the most important three out of 10 things, you know, that may be enough to, to really um, make them happy and, and get them kind of back on board. And thinking about how you can turn their asks into features that are not just for them, but that can help your entire customer base. You know, it's, it's, they may ask for something a certain way. If you think of it a little bit differently, you know, you may find that, hey, this is a feature that maybe not exactly how they wanted it uh, really could be a fantastic one to, to offer our, 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 our customers and, and really get us to the next level with our product. And, and I think when you, when you look at a SaaS company, uh, one of the things that is the most important as you're building your SaaS product which I'm assuming, you know, most most startups today think about their product that way uh, and, and construct their product that way is, is configurability. You know, oftentimes we get ourselves in trouble when we build a product that has a lot of hard coded features or functions or to change something. It's a, a development effort, a development cycle. But, you know, if you think there's an area of your product that will be very unique to different customers, build it so it's configurable. And that way, when a cu enterprise customer or any customer comes along, it's a configuration change versus a, um, you know, versus a, something that is a, a full feature development, which can be pretty disruptive to your roadmap. All right. That's a lot of great advice when it comes to collaborating with, uh, with, with customers and, and designing a roadmap. Another area that startups need to consider when going after enterprise customers is security and compliance. Now, this probably deserves its own podcast as well, but can we speak to you know, what kind of changes you need to make when it comes to security and compliance when, when you do get one of these bigger enterprise customers? Yeah, and security and compliance for sure should always be top of mind to any startup because for sure nothing would destroy your company faster than you know having some sort of a breach that really could be a company ending type of situation but often you know I think startups really think about it in the context of sort of the bare minimum you know okay what do I need to do to just feel feel uh, like I'm covering the bases but enterprises typically will demand a whole lot more from the software companies that they work with. Can you speak to uh, some of the compliance frameworks that exist? Sure. And it definitely depends on the type of customers you're serving, but just to name a few, HIPAA, uh, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, you know, that applies to companies that serve the, the health and health insurance industry. And you know, it legislates how companies should handle secure and secure patients' personal medical information. You know, at, at software companies that I've been at, like, you know, at Oracle, all of the employees had to take HIPAA training, even though I wasn't even working in the, the, the part of Oracle that, that handled uh, the healthcare practice. 
So it's definitely not uncommon for software companies to need to, to take HIPAA training. SOX, which is the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, applies to the corporate care and maintenance of financial data and public companies. You know, if you are, if your startup uh, is taking payment information or credit card information, PCI compliance is kind of the standard there. Uh, and a big one is SOC reports, so service organization and control reports. And there's, you know, SOC two type one SOC, you know, type two types of certification you can achieve. And this deals with managing financial or personal information at a company. This is big if you're if you're dealing, uh, you know, with with customers' financial data. So there's a lot of different types of regulations and frameworks out there that you need to be aware of depending on the types of customers you're serving. You know, oftentimes enterprises will not only expect to see compliance to these standards, but might even require a third-party certified compliance and put conditions uh, in your contract that require you to demonstrate that you continue to remain in compliance over future years by, by agreeing to audits and, and the like. And next, which aspects of the business are covered by security? Yeah, it's really three main a- aspects when you, when you think about security, you know, networks, yeah, devices, uh, and users are, are kind of three really important areas. So those are the three areas that you need to consider because those are where yep. breaches can occur. Am I getting that right? Yeah, that's right for sure. And you know, and they all have sort of different components which are relevant. Everything from security at the endpoint, which would be your devices, to how you're managing your network to to avoid kind of you know attacks and, and, and breaches. All right. So which steps should startups consider undertaking to ensure compliance with the requirements that these enterprise clients might insist on? Yeah, I think it's for sure a very important and complex area. You know, some of the, the things that you can do to, to get started are, you know, listing all the current security tools and software you have in your environment you know, conducting, you know, bringing in someone to conduct a risk assessment of the types of information that you are processing to determine, do you have all the bases covered? Is there, are there additional things you should do? Analyzing gaps in your current controls with regards to kind of the the risk assessment that's been provided. And and based on that, come up with a, a really clear and detailed plan to solve those deficiencies and, and kind of continually monitor and, and iterate, whether it's pen testing or a third-party security team that comes in and provides audits, be prepared that this is just going to be a regular part of your business going forward. Nobody said it would be easy. Yeah, no, that's um, for sure. And then to, to touch on security, what are some of the steps towards establishing an information security compliance management program? I think you start with with making sure you have the right IT leadership in place, you know, and that that starts with whether it's, it's you know, your, you know, your own IT resources or, you know, contracting to a, a third party, but, but really establishing an information security compliance management program and then, you know, establishing really a a minimum set of security requirements that you think you're going to need to protect the type of data your, you know, your service is housing. 
And then, you know, really making sure that your IT leadership is managing to that program and getting all the right stakeholders involved and, and keeping you know, everybody up to date on the progress. All right, let's move on to topic number three. That's going to be business continuity. Startups are known for high non-survival rate, I'll call it. So how do enterprises think about business continuity when it comes to startups? I think you sort of have to put yourself in the, the position of your kind of executive sponsor within your, your enterprise customer. And that's probably you know, somebody in, in IT or maybe a functional lead, and they are trusting your startup to be a key part of a mission-critical operation for their business. And, you know, your company has a, probably has a limited track record, you know, probably not yet making money and still has a product that really hasn't proved itself in terms of scaling and, and, and lots of different customer usage. And yeah, that executive sponsor's worst nightmare be that one day you cease operations or that you haven't properly invested in scaling your operations and could significantly harm their ability to function. So that's, I think, I think the first step in really understanding the importance of, of business continuity from a you know, startup standpoint is think about it like your customer is thinking about it. And what are some of the things that the enterprise customers are, are going to be likely to ask for, given that you know, there's no 100% certainty that these, these startups continue operations? I think they're going to want to understand how your operations minimize any chance of data loss, how quickly critical operations can bounce back once down, and how you're minimizing your risk through redundancy. In the old days, like when I first started out, it was all about redundant servers in your, in your data center that you were running or having a, a backup data center somewhere in a different location. You know, now that really most startups are, are, are likely running in a public cloud like you know, Amazon Web Services or, or Azure or, or Google Cloud, it might mean leveraging your provider's current infrastructure in terms of things like availability zones or regions, you know, making sure you've got redundant operations in different availability zones or your DR is really focused on different regions of your, of your, of your cloud provider or, you know, the really sophisticated, the really sophisticated companies maybe look at a multi-cloud strategy to really provide maximum maximum continuity. And in all of these areas come with a cost trade-off as well as the potential complexity of managing these multiple environments. So they're they're not free, you know, if you do have a lot more infrastructure that and and that these capabilities that you're provisioning from your public cloud provider, it's probably going to cost you or it's going to maybe make your deployments a bit more difficult to manage. But those are some of the best practices. And when you think about how the customer, your enterprise customer might want you to really, you know, give them insight as to your thinking and your strategy, I've really seen it kind of all over the place. I mean, in some cases, you know, they might just want to be spending time with your operations folks and architects 
and really kind of getting their internal IT resources and experts comfortable with how your service was built and how it was deployed at the other end of the spectrum. If you're dealing with, you know, a large, a large bank maybe, or a large, you know, a financial services customer, they might ask to see a formal disaster recovery plan with results from, from recent tests and ask you to test business continuity on a regular basis. So it's all about mitigating risk. That's absolutely. How does a startup reassure an enterprise customer in managing that worst case scenario where they have to cease their operations? There's a couple of different ways of handling that, you know, for sure, having them talk to, if you are backed by VCs or other investors, having them talk to your investors who can demonstrate the, the you know, the commitment to, to your company, to your startup is, 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 a, is a big step on a more tactical level. You know, one thing that I have used, you know, effectively in the past is to enter into a source code escrow agreement with your customer. I've heard of that. Can you tell me what a source code escrow provision is and then how is it a good idea? Yeah. So what a source code uh, escrow provision is, is, it means you enter into, uh, typically included in the contract that you have with your enterprise customer and it states very specific reasons when this uh, provision can be triggered, but it's it's an agreement you have with a, a third party, and that third party basically uh, will escrow a copy of the source code for your product, meaning you will have to deliver it to them either by transferring it to their servers. In the old days, it might have been sending CDs to this third party, and you know, vendor I've worked with in the past, Iron Mountain is an example of a source code escrow provider. And if something happens that triggers that provision in your contract, like you, you know, your funding goes below a certain level, you cease to, to operate, you have a certain amount of downtime, then that uh, provision in the contract is triggered and your enterprise customer has the right to get a copy of your source code and start running it uh, on their own. And this will allow them to effectively either run the service or hire a third party to run the service. Uh, and that helps assure them of, of continuity of operations should something really, you know, really kind of devastating befall, you know, your company. It sounds complicated. It also sounds really important for, for giving kind of customers, enterprise customers reassurances. Is doing software escrow expensive? What what have you experienced? Yeah, I mean, usually the fee is is pretty nominal, and also if you compare it to other potential downstream costs, such as entering into a legal battle, if there's litigation as a result of your being unable to provide the service, and the the impact of potential lost business if you're unwilling to to you know entertain this type of provision it's actually a lot more expensive not to not to think about this and provide this you know we're talking about saas companies if you're only selling software there's not really much physical behind it so the question i have is is this something that is still like reasonable to ask for in a saas environment because i'm i'm sure that you know startups are very protective over their source code. No, for sure. And I think it's it's also still a very valid request in a SaaS environment because this the the public cloud 
you know, that you may be hosting your solution in is really just the infrastructure. If something happens to the public cloud provider that you're using and that service is not able to, to continue, your code is not part of their disaster recovery. Your data, their, your customer's data is not part of their disaster recovery. So, you know, even in a SaaS environment, this is still a very, you know, very important thing to consider. So after hearing all of this, do you think, uh, do you think it's best for startups to avoid messing with enterprise customers entirely? Yeah, that would seem to be the easiest answer. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of this can, can sound super intimidating. You know, I've, in some of my startups in the past, I have worked with the largest auto manufacturers in the world, some of the largest banks in the world, uh, largest manufacturers in the world. And, you know, when I worked with Oracle, dealing with enterprise customers was 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 very different because I had the whole weight of Oracle behind me. But with your startup, you know, you feel very exposed. But that doesn't mean it isn't a challenge you shouldn't embrace and go after. Because being successful in, in making an enterprise successful can be incredibly gratifying and, and take your business to the next level. You know, I think in the end, the most important thing is to bring on your early enterprise customers as true partners uh, and build a spirit of partnership in them. And so they don't view you as just another vendor and ultimately run you through procurement and that you have you have a true sponsor and partner who feels vested in your success as well as a customer. Um, and this is ultimately, I believe, going to come down to the CEO or the very senior executive teams to build strong relationships of trust with these with these early enterprise customers that you might have. And I've seen it go both ways. You know, in one of the last startups I was in, I was running product and the CEO did just an amazing job of becoming a trusted advisor to his early customers. You know, when I would go in meetings and I'd see the way they would engage him, it was really clear that there was a ton of respect uh, for this CEO and, and, and they really viewed him as an advisor. And as a result, not coincidentally, these early customers became major advocates, helped propel the company to a new stage of, of growth and a, a very successful outcome. And you know, like Dave Duffield of PeopleSoft and Workday fame was, was legendary at building these relationships. And then another company I was at, I was running product and the CEO had really no ability to, to, to form those bonds. You know, we were lucky enough to get a couple of enterprise customers as a result of acquiring a company that had gone, gone out and, and he was not able to build bonds with them and the company failed despite having major VC backing. So I see that executive trust as being so critical. That's awesome. My next question was like, can you tell me about some of the rewards of having a good relationship with your with your customers and partners? But you, you kind of just did that. So let me reframe the question. You've seen CEOs that were able to do this kind of relationship management and, and expectationship management of enterprise customers. And uh, from the sound of it, you've seen CEOs that weren't so good at it. So can you speak to maybe some of the best practices of how you manage those relationships because you know when you're talking about an enterprise customer and, and companies managing relationships, there's a lot of people involved. There's a lot of complexity. So how do you do it? I think there's there's a few kind of important guidelines. You know, I think 
one is not to not to overpromise, not to overpromise, and, and really try to be realistic and, and transparent with your your customer. And if the news isn't good, don't hide or sugarcoat. Don't try to dance around it. Just just be transparent, direct, uh, and honest with what you can do. And, and also, you know, try to make your 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 customer, your sponsor, look like a hero. You know, back in the day when you know Arriva was first getting started, I always admired how that company made their early sponsors look like the heroes. And they featured them. They put them on, uh, you know, out front, and and they became the story. So I think uh, that 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 is so key. And then and then also really doing your homework, learning everything you can about the client from, you know, what their business model is, you know, what's important to them to succeed, you know, what they what they offer in the market that distinguishes them. So so really getting to understand their business is absolutely critical. And I would just say, you know, last is is really, you know, tr- go and treat them like a, a partner, and 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 it's it's a challenge sometimes to get them to reciprocate, but really building that that partnership mindset and, and letting them know that you know you guys are in this together, you know, what and being available to them twenty four seven, and building a bit of a personal relationship as well. Those are all the things that really go a long way to cementing that that uh, relationship that you need with your enterprise customers and, and the sponsors at those customers to, to be successful. Very well said. Steve, in the last 20 years, you've kind of been, you know, you've been in the trenches, you've been doing this, living it. Do you think it's become easier for startups to work with enterprise customers over that time or is it actually becoming harder? I think it is it, it, it it's just different, mm. and and the reason why I say it's just different is, 20 years ago, a lot of the decisions made in an enterprise customer were made by the IT department. So you know you really you know the IT department decided what what software what products were to be used, and kind of everybody else just sort of had to live with it. And in some ways that was, you know, it was, it was what we knew in that, in that time is what we knew in that world. Now it's with, with the advent of, of, you know, software as a service and the public cloud and, you know, the, the, the whole dynamic of mobile devices has mm-hmm. changed the way enterprise technology is both provisioned by enterprises and used by the enterprise, you know, customers and users. And because of that, it's, it's just shifted the playing field. It's a whole different dynamic now. Your, your sponsor might be, you know, somebody who's very much on the business side. Um, you might get into a very small part of the organization before kind of branching out to, to a larger, you know, part of the business. And, and for sure, you know, the things you, have, you think about, 20 years ago, no one thought about how an end user cared about the software, you know, uh, mm-hmm. they, they, because the only time they, they would read the manual and they'd be stuck with it. Now, those same end users, you know, with democratization of IT and consumerization of enterprise software, 
you know, they know what good and bad software is and your end users will call you out on bad software if, if, if what you've built isn't as easy to use as Facebook or Gmail or, mm. you know, their online banking. So I think it's really changed. And it's, it's really, you know, again, this is probably one of those things to have a whole podcast on as well as, <laughs> you know, how expectations of serving enterprise customers successfully just from a, you know, the, the services you provide the end users, how that's changed. All right. I really like that answer, Steve. I think we should end it there. I think we've uh, kind of bookmarked a few future episodes uh, in this one. So let's try and get you back on here soon. If you liked our show, uh, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a rating. Uh, also, Steve, if the listeners want to get in touch, what's the best way to reach you? They can always uh, reach out to me at, at svarengo at gmail.com or look for me on LinkedIn. Awesome. Thank you, Steve, for joining the show today. I appreciate you sharing your expertise and your time. I'll be taking some of these lessons directly to my, uh, my nine to five. So uh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. It's been great to talk with you. Thanks for, thanks for the opportunity.